sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit Epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a neurologist who practices at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, our microbiome and how it might impact our cancer risk. Then, an agency helping those without insurance, Jack's Care Connect. But first, I'm going to confess something. If you recognize this music playing right now, it's the unmistakable sound of The Last of Us, the classic video game that was turned into an HBO hit show, then we get each other. I absolutely love zombie shows. In full disclosure, I even taught a course on the subject at Arizona State University. And The Last of Us is a must-watch phenomenon for me. To me, all zombie shows are medical dramas because they always feature either a virus, bacteria, or in The Last of Us, a mutant fungus. What makes these shows so fascinating to me is how a little bit of real science is adjusted to create a pandemic that changes the course of human society and how individuals react to this. Truth be told, we humans live in an ocean of microorganisms that live among, in, and on us, known as the microbiome. In fact, the microbiome is the collection of all microbes, such as bacteria, fungi, viruses, and their genes that naturally live on our bodies and inside us. Although microbes are so small that they require a microscope to see them, we're just beginning to understand how they can contribute in big ways to human health and wellness, and whether assessing and manipulating them can lead to new ways to diagnose and treat diseases. In fact, a recent study by Mayo Clinic investigators published in the journal Scientific Reports demonstrated a potential use of the microbiome as indicators in early detection and screening for ovarian cancer and predicting patients' response to treatment. Even though this is only one study, this is huge. So if you've ever wondered about your microbiome and its impact on healthcare, this show is for you. Joining us to explore the microbiome and its relationship to certain types of cancer is Marina Walther Antonio. She's a microbiome researcher within Mayo Clinic's Center for Individualized Medicine and a study author on a paper that looks at the topic of microbiomes and ovarian cancer. She's also a member of the Mayo Clinic Comprehensive Cancer Center and focuses on women's health, particularly gynecologic cancers. Dr. Walther Antonio, welcome to our program. Thank you for having me. Now, I know I just gave a very... Uh, simple definition of microbiome in the intro I just uh, mentioned, but can you explain what the microbiome is and how it relates to cancer? 
Yeah, I think your your definition was quite good, and uh, I never heard of that connected to zombies. So that was <laughs> quite uh, refreshing. Um, but yes, so so microbes uh, microbiome is is a relatively new term, and it, it is meant to encompass all microbes that live in our body and on our body, uh, not just the the germs or the bad microbes, the pathogens but also microbes that are born with us and you know will remain with us for the rest of our life and actually perform functions that are beneficial they help us digest our food and regulate our immune system and do a lot of functions that actually our body has evolved to expect uh, that those good microbes are there to help us through our lifetime uh, they're partners in our health so the perspective of the microbiome is slightly different than what you would think in, in clinical microbiology, where you're just uh, seeing microbes more as pathogens and agents of disease. Here, we're thinking of microbes as uh, good partners that we should actually maintain uh, with us to protect us from even bad microbes that can try to come in and, and harm us. So that that's kind of how we um, how we think about it and more of an ecosystem approach. Understood. Um, so, so that that's fascinating. So we have these ecosystems of these helpful bugs, organisms living uh, amongst us. So how does that then connect to such a chronic condition uh, such as cancer or its development or progression? Yeah, so all of that is still being, you know, studied and we're all trying to understand exactly how that might happen. Our group and, and many other groups have found that patients who have cancer often have changes in, in the microbiome. They have microbes that either completely disappear, new ones that come in, or changes. Uh, they just become much more abundant or much less abundant than patients who do not have cancer. And so that's an association or a correlation with the disease, right? And so what we are now trying to understand is, is it more than just that? It's great that we can use those things as a biomarker or as an indicator for the disease and, and things associated with the disease, risk factors, um, response to treatments, all of those things. But is it more than just that? Um, do they actually have, are they involved in the causation of the disease? Are they involved in the progression of it? Are they involved in the outcomes and how well patients do? And that's part of more of the what's called mechanistic work, um, kind of looking more into, into those aspects. The signatures, the microbial signatures be between different cancers look different. And, you know, because we study uh, endometrial cancer, which is cancer that uh, in the uterus and it, ovarian cancer in the ovary, we see different signatures even between these two. Uh, we see, for example, that in endometrial cancer, there's particular microbes that show up that weren't there before and, and tend to have properties uh, that are more pathogenic in nature. And we are studying them in the lab to try to understand exactly what is it that they're doing to our cells. In ovarian cancer, we see more of a depletion of good microbes. So it's a, it's a little different story, although still connected to, to particular microbes and, and often what we call opportunistic pathogens, which are microbes that are friends but if given the opportunity, meaning if your immune system just isn't doing as well as it used to, you're getting older and other comorbidities, other, you, you gain other conditions, the microbes can uh, become more adversarial and they can, they can take advantage of a weakened host, right? And so those, those are things we are investigating to try to understand what exactly is happening and how can we change that? How can we intervene to to not allow that to happen in a you know, direction that is not conducive to, to good health and good outcomes? I appreciate that. So let me ask uh, a couple other items here with regards to the microbiome and, and how it looks in certain situations. Let, let me uh, ask just in general, with regards to like, let's say someone is getting chemotherapy, uh, for ovarian cancer, endometrial cancer, what, uh, whatever type of cancer, does that treatment change what the microbial or microbiome signature looks like or what, what the microbiome looks like in general? 
Yes, it, it very typically it does. Um, there have been uh, several studies looking into this. And yes, I mean, chemotherapy and, and, and it is, is a, almost like antibiotics on steroids, right? They are very, it's very toxic treatment that is intended to, to kill cancer cells, but it also impacts healthy cells. And, and that's why people, you know, um, lose their hair and, and other things. And it also impacts uh, microbes. It's it's a very you know it's a chemical compounds that are that are that are toxic to the point of, of right killing cancer cells. So um, so there's going to be changes that occur in in the microbial population as well. Different microbes will be impacted differently. One thing about microbes is that they we think of them as in in general, all right. When we think of, of microbes, we think of small things that we can't see more or less look the same, but actually when, when you study them, you realize that the diversity between microbes, the, the metabolism they have, the compounds that they can process, digest, and produce are actually much wider variety than, than we can do it, than our cells, than our own cells can do it. So, you know, the word microbes is used to just, again, agglomerate uh, small things that we can't see with a naked eye, uh, but they really describe a huge, huge variety of different microorganisms. Some of them, uh, in fact, can even digest some of those chemotherapy drugs and actually, you know, utilize them for their, their own benefit even. Wow. So, whereas others, you know, will die as a result. So, and anything in between. So there are uh, many things and, and some, stu some studies actually show that because of this capacity to metabolize some of these drugs, uh, microbes can actually shield tumors from receiving the drug uh, and even the dosage that they should be receiving and can actually interfere with the treatment in that way by just being in the way of it. Um, That's so that there's, there's a lot of variety of situations. Yeah. That is fascinating because I could see how that might impact treatment. Well, let me, before we get into your, uh, to your study that we're going to try to understand, uh, which is uh, so important for us, I, I'm curious. People get cancer screenings all the time, uh, whether it's uh, a mammogram for breast cancer, a PSA for prostate cancer. Could a microbiome analysis, uh, the bugs on your body, in your body, could that be used for early cancer detection, a screen, if you will? Certainly could. You know, for example, you know, I think the earliest example we have of something like that is Helicobacter pylori or H. pylori for stomach cancer mm -hmm. that is still utilized to, um, you know, to identify uh, patients at high risk for stomach cancer and, and GI cancers, uh, gastrointestinal cancers. Um, there's also, you know, virus, uh, viruses, of course, uh, there's more examples of that, one being the human papillomavirus or HPV for cervical cancer uh, that is used routinely for screening for, for cervical cancer. So these, these microbial signatures we are discovering can, in theory, uh, also fall in, into those categories. The, the challenge is more practical. So the challenge is, you know, if you have a signature, you need to understand, like, how specific is it to the disease? How early can you detect it? And what, what's the benefit to the patient um, of going through, you know, putting a patient population through screening? It's expensive. It takes, you know, patients get anxious about screenings, obviously. Is it worth the benefit, right, that it produces? You know, so so the, the difficulty is more is more understanding how this test should be applied to what population and how are we going to demonstrate that we're we're doing more good things than than causing stress and unnecessary uh, stress on patients. So that that's that's more the what 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 leads to some some more thinking and preparation and more investigation to really narrow down on a, a good application that patients can benefit from. Let me, let me ask another question before also we go into to your study. I'm curious, diet is such a huge part of issues related to cancer. Certain diets we know when they're poor can lead to cancer. How does diet impact the microbiome in its relationship with cancer? Do we know? To some extent, we know some some things. You know, we know that you are what you eat, right? That's right. that's a long, long saying, and that goes for microbes too. So they they also are being fed what we eat, and you can certainly uh, change the microbial population by by adjusting your diet. That has been demonstrated very well. 
so if you enrich for a certain microbial population that maybe isn't uh, very beneficial, uh, they can start producing you know, toxic compounds themselves. They can overgrow um, the other uh, microbes and destabilize the ecosystem, right? The healthy ecosystem and really take it to, you know, a situation where either the immune system becomes overreactive to, to these microbes and, and, you know, starts attacking them, causing some inflammation, for example, in, in the gut, which can be very uh, impactful in, in health. Um, or you can, you know, uh, start just, just irritating, uh, you know, our own cells and, and, and the, you know, the layer of cells that are in contact with the microbes can can get very harmed uh, at times by by these microbes. Um, so, you know, the, all these things can be modulated uh, or changed by by how we how we eat, um, not just diet, but actually many other things such as physical activity and wow. and, and such. But but certainly diet uh, being a, a very very uh, direct um, uh, modifier of, of our gut health. To all of our listeners, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and if you're just joining us, we're talking about microbiome and cancer, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservan. Dr. Walter Antonio, I want us to understand your friend, you and your entire group's wonderful study that just got published. Can you tell us about your study and what you found and and try to keep it as easy as you can for us because I know it's fairly complicated after reading it. Sure. So this is a pilot study. So, um, you know, that was done with um, 30, about 35 patients, um, patients with uh, diagnosed with ovarian cancer and also patients that uh, were diagnosed with some other gynecologic condition uh, that was not malignant, so not cancer, mm-hmm. uh, but to require them to go through um, surgery. Um, and that's that's how we obtained the surgical the specimens uh, or samples. So what we found was that we, we collected basically um, swabs and scrapes and some tissues from these patients as they went through the surgery, um, vaginal, cervical, uterine, also the fallopian tubes and the ovaries. Um, and we basically did a description of what their microbial communities were in those organs. Um, it also included urine and stool. And uh, what we found was that there was um, a difference between patients who, who had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer versus those who hadn't, not just in the ovaries, but actually some of them detectable in, in, in the vaginal microbiome, um, in stool as well. Um, and in the uterus. Um, and so, you know, that was pretty interesting uh, to, to notice. Uh, and it was particularly prevalent in early cancer. So in cases of ovarian cancer cases that are that were still in the early stage, um, which is, you know, incredibly difficult to yes, yes. Um, diagnose because there's no symptoms or risk factors um, associated with it. <clears throat> so that opens the door to, to potential, you know, a big interest in, in that area. Now, the other thing, the other main finding that we had was that we, you know, we waited for two and four years after the surgery of the patients and, um, you know, follow their outcomes through treatment. And then we thought, well, let's look at the samples that we collected right at that when they were treatment naive and was just diagnosed with with cancer. Um, And looking within that patient population, could we tell just based on that microbial community which patients were going to do well two years down the line or four years down the line and those that did not respond well to treatment and had uh, worse outcomes. And, you know, much to our surprise, I guess, didn't quite anticipate that, but yes, we could. Um, we could tell which, which just based on the microbiome signatures, um, we could differentiate, we could tell them apart which patients, you know, uh, fell into the better outcomes and the worse outcomes. So this, you know, again, right now, it's not something that we could, uh, put into you know action because unfortunately right now we, we don't have many options for treating ovarian cancer, um, so it, you know it doesn't work in that way right now. Um, but in the future, as we continue to develop new treatments and and additions to treatments, this could help um, determine which patients you know uh, might have a greater benefit from standard therapy versus you know clinical trials, for example, for other new approaches. Um, those that we anticipate are probably going to do 
worse, uh, maybe you should go on a fast track to to uh, to different treatments to try something different. Um, so we're pretty uh, hopeful that that could open the door to some of those things. The possibilities are mind-boggling, and and this is amazing work. Um, I'm curious, how did the microbiome of the cancer patients differ from those without cancer? So most of the signatures, there's particular microbes that are um, seem to be associated uh, with ovarian cancer. Um, you know, Dialister was one of them, Corinobacterium, Peptonifilis, all difficult words, Latin words. <laughs> yeah. um, but they are... <laughs> They are microbes that uh, are often associated. Um, we have seen uh, some of them associated with endometrial cancer. Others have been associated with with other things. Um, but the main thing that jumped to us was actually a, a depletion or a reduction of good microbes. Um, some oh. of the lactobacillus species and and other microbes that we typically see that are tend to be common, um, you know, common microbes in in. Uh, that 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 ha that we have, and they were really um, uh, depleted, and uh, that that was interesting because we haven't quite come across that sort of signature where we tend to see more of a enrichment of pathogens rather than a reduction of good microbes. But it really takes home the message that you know we tend to focus a lot on what's bad and, and less on what's good, and and <laughs> having what's good is really really important. And this might be a story of losing our friends. Um, that protect us from very bad things, and and potentially that that is a, a little different story than than the one we see for endometrial cancer and, and other cancers. That is fascinating. So th that opens up the natural question: Could manipulation of the microbiome? So you talked about in this one case, it was a depletion of the good microbes, but could manipulating it by giving that to someone uh, in whatever form, could that be used as a therapeutic approach uh, for cancer treatment or prevention? In theory, um, right? In theory, it opens the door to that possibility. You know, if there is, again, if this is not just a biomarker, if it if there is right. a role that these microbes are playing and that we would want to replenish them, um, yes, you could think of, of uh, different approaches, of course, probiotics. Um, you know, come to mind, obviously, there's right. also what's called prebiotics, which is food, but not for us, for the microbes. It's it's nutrients that the microbes like. And perhaps, you know, perhaps we are not uh, in some situations eating uh, the, the the nutrients that the microbes need to, to, to sustain themselves, and that's why they disappear. So maybe if we uh, give those supplements um, that are for these microbes to stay around, um, that could help as well. Uh, there's there's even conversations about transplants as well, um, you know, which in the gut transplant um, world that this has been um, done for a few conditions, you know, and now we're thinking vaginal transplants as a possibility of, of microbes, microbial communities. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a few options that could be pursued, but of course, before that, we need to make sure that, that that's consequential and that it will make a difference um, before we attempt to do those things. Um, to avoid unintended consequences, obviously. Dr. Walter Antonio, so many questions I have, so little time as, as we try to fit this in. One other question that comes up that is so frequent, we all know antibiotic use is rampant for everything. So I wonder, how does the use of antibiotics impact the microbiome and its relationship with cancer? It, it certainly could. Um, so antibiotics are, you know, there's different classes of them, but but all antibiotics impact more than the target. Um, they they are they are fairly broad reaching, and so if you're targeting a particular microbe, you're going to wipe out an entire class of microbes. Really, some of them good. People know that, but of course, you know, we're trying to treat something that is infectious and needs to be addressed immediately. So, um, but but yes, we we might lose those microbes, and then the other side of this is that. Uh, replenishing those sometimes it's not easy, um, and especially now in modern living, I guess we are not as exposed to mother nature, so to speak, and and uh, and and places that that we tend to to you know be exposed to to good microbes and and to be replenished, so to speak. So if you lose them and then you can't um, access places where you would regain them, 
in some way, well, they they could be gone, um, you know, for a long time, and 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 really have real consequences in in, in the health of people. Um, you know, it is very well known that people who are on especially long-term antibiotics, they develop often um, a lot of GI symptoms, right? Um, diarrhea and gastrointestinal discomfort, constipation, all kinds of things, which are all signs of a community trying to go back to some kind of balance. Right. Um, and some people never recover, unfortunately, from, from those disturbances. Uh, some people take some time. Some people recover into some kind of balance that is not the same that was before, and, and they can develop a lot of symptoms and conditions from as a result of this. So as important as antibiotics are, and I do want to make clear that they're life-saving and, and the reason why I'm talking to you and probably all talking to each other because, you know, many of us would have died without uh, their use, uh, they, they do have, um, you know, consequences, long-term consequences that we need to, to think about and, and, um, and, and when, when we use them and be cautious about their use. Got it. Um, one other question that comes up, uh, well, there's so much focus now on looking and understanding uh, how different ethnicities and genders uh, relate to health and health care. Do we know whether microbes or microbiomes, if you will, are different between races and ethnicities that impact cancer risk? So in, in the vaginal microbiome in particular, um, there have been several studies, and um, we've done some as well, uh, showing that there, there are um, differences between ethnicities and races um, that we're not, we don't quite understand why uh, they exist, um, but they, there are differences. And we've have done a study um, in, actually it was in uh, pregnancy and preterm labor where we compared a population, you know, a white population to a, uh, actually a black population in Nigeria. And we could actually find signatures, uh, early signatures of, of preterm risk, preterm delivery risk um, in both populations, but they weren't the same. Uh, meaning that, you know, this is really important to understand because if we were to deploy, say a test uh, for risk in preterm uh, birth, and we use the markers that we have for a particular population, say a white population, and we have use, you know, apply, try to apply them to a black population, it might just not work at all. Um, and so we need to know, understand the population we're studying so that we develop the markers that are appropriate for that population and that will lead to the outcomes we want to see. Um, so it's very, very important that we that we study uh, the populations we intend to treat um, and, and do something appropriate that will help them specifically. Our director, Isabella Da Silva, joins us now with questions for our experts from our listeners. Mr. Postman. Hi, Isabella. Can you tell us what do you have in the bag for us today? Hi, Dr. Servant. Jenna from Atlanta, Georgia. What kinds of foods and habits can positively impact our microbiome? Dr. Walther Antonio. Hard question. <laughs> it depends who you are. <laughs> I'm glad you're the expert than me. <laughs> um, yeah, what kind of foods? So, uh, you know, sometimes we think of, you know, foods that, that you know, we have short memory often. Uh, but but foods that make you feel good typically are good for you, and, and foods that don't sit right uh, often aren't as good. Um, so, you know, uh, picking those that, that really lead you to have uh, good uh, good digestive, you know, uh, symptoms and, and, and not experiencing, you know, bloating, diarrhea and things, of course, to something to avoid and remember what happened last time uh, when you ate those things. Um, but we do know that eating, you know, a, a, a variety, uh, the most important thing is, is really eating a, a variety of things, a diverse diet, I would say is the most important thing probably, um, because that will ensure that, again, you're feeding all your friends. Um, you know, maybe they're picky and they really like a particular thing. And, you know, if you eat a variety of things, you're probably going to get them what they need to, to stay around, um, you know, and not eating too much of one thing, uh, repetitive, uh, you know, eating always the same thing every day. I would say that's, uh, that's probably the most harmful thing I believe that people might do, um, that really long-term can, can cause a lot of deficits, um, in, in their, in their overall health and, and microbiome, um, ecosystem. Um, you know, if you have, um, you know, if you think of it as an ecosystem, this becomes uh, easier to understand because if you have, say, you know, uh, uh, you know, jungle, um, and you only, you know, introduce into the system meat, for example, you know, all the plants are going to die because that's not what they, you know, right. um, or 
or if you just in, ingest a particular nutrient, it's going to just lead to the very um, various imbalances that aren't very healthy. So um, just just balance balance and diversity is the most important thing, I'd say. Isabella, what else do we have? Jeremy from Phoenix. My wife, who is a Scandinavian, is always preaching to me about the importance of probiotics. What are probiotics and how are they related to microbiomes? Are probiotics safe? Dr. Walter Antonio. Probiotics. So probiotics are microbes. Um, They are manufactured uh, typically to be live. Uh, that you know they're they're what's called lyophilized, which means they're in, in a dry powder. Uh, but when you you know introduce them with with some liquid form, they can come back to life. And they're typically a mixture of of what we think of as good microbes, lactobacillus species, and and the like, that tend to to have be associated with good health and good digestive health. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's there's pills, I guess, and there's yogurts and dietary supplements that have them. Um, you know, people uh, respond to it differently. Uh, what we tend to see in, in manufacturing is still, you know, a work in progress, but is that, you know, some people benefit from particular types of, of mixtures. And again, it's kind of a try trying out different things to see what works for you. Um, typically those benefits, what we tend to see is that they tend to fade away once you stop taking them. Uh, and that probably might have to do with just longevity uh, of those microbes, how long they can, um, stay around in our body um, because they're coming into a community that is already formed and they're newcomers and they're typically kicked out um, often. So if you, you know, keep taking them, you might continue to get that benefit. And if you stop, you might, it might go away. Um, and some people react well to ones versus others. What I mentioned before was these prebiotics, which are food for microbes, which are um, a little different, but, but um, the intent is the same is to, it's more to feed and maintain um, certain microbes around. Um, a natural form of probiotics that your your wife probably uh, knows is fermented uh, foods, right? Yes. So when you when you eat fermented foods, you're kind of ingesting uh, live microbes as well. That that can be a natural form to try to introduce them in your diet as well. Uh, and again, um, if it works for you, that's great. <laughs> um, <laughs> not everything works for everybody, and um, it, we don't quite understand the reasons why in detail. But it has to do a lot with your own. Um, uh, with the community of microbes you have in your body already uh, and how they react to, to these new introductions. Well, I guess uh, Jeremy will, sounds like he will be listening to his wife based on <laughs> <laughs> based on your answer. I think we have time for uh, one last question. Uh, Isabella, what is that? Jacinda from Palo Alto, California. I am a strict vegan. I am curious to know how eating meat impacts the microbiome. Is the risk of cancer associated with red meat related to the microbiome? This is a fascinating question. Uh, what do you think, Dr. Walther Antonio? It is. Um, so there have been studies that have associated the consumption of red meat, or I would say the, the, the frequent consumption of, of, of red meat to, to some cancers, particularly colon cancer and things like that. Um, but, you know, not consuming any meat also can have its own consequences in, in the sense that we do need, um, you know, some source of protein uh, that is that is vast and abundant and and you know there's ways to to get those uh, through vegan diets but you know you have to know kind of what you're doing to make sure you don't again get into a deficit of something that is important so understanding that once you transition to diets that are vegan or, or, or even vegetarian make sure that you still maintain a balance of all the nutrients you need to, to maintain a healthy state um, we have seen actually published this study, even in, in the vaginal microbiome, there's an impact of diet um, and, and consumption and being a vegan and vegetarian does change even your vaginal microbiome, not just the gut, but actually the vaginal as well. Um, and we did this study with, with some young women um, in college age, and, and we are continuing actually to follow them up as they, as they age um, and go through life changes and things like that to try to understand, start to gain insights into what, if those changes are meaningful for their long-term health or not. Um, right now it's still early to tell, um, but that is our goal is to try to answer that question in more of a, um, in a more precise way, uh, to try to understand what the, that diet is going to do to them in 10, 20 years. That um, is, uh, so it, we'll it, have an answer by then. <laughs> I, I, and we will have you back on. I, I want to thank you, Dr. <laughs> Walter Antonio. This has been so fascinating and so interesting. We, we really appreciate all your uh, wisdom and advice today. Thank you so much. 
Appreciate it. We've been talking to Dr. Walther Antonio. She is a microbiome researcher within Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine and a member of Mayo Clinic's Comprehensive Cancer Center. She is one of the study authors looking at microbiome and its relationship to various gynecologic cancers, specifically ovarian cancer. And up next, we talk to Jack's Care Connect a service ready to help when you don't have medical insurance. We'll be right back. Joe Servin, and this is what's health got to do with it. This show is all about access to health care and how to navigate the system. Sadly, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, 13.1% of Duval County, Florida residents do not have health insurance. So how do you navigate a system if you're not in the game? Our next guest belongs to an organization that is here to help. Jack's Care Connect is a collaboration created by the local nonprofit safety net of free and charitable clinics to assist uninsured adult Duval County residents find a primary care medical home. Their project administrator, Jenny O'Donnell, joins us now in studio to tell us more. Jenny, welcome to our program. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I kind of mentioned what Jack's Care Connect is, uh, but why don't you tell us about Jack's Care Connect? What is it exactly? Absolutely. And before I get started, I do want to uh, reiterate that 114,000 Duval County residents do not have uh, health insurance or access to health care. So that's exactly huge. right. It's huge. That's a big number. Um, so Jack's Care Connect is a shared project of the Duval um, Safety Net Collaborative, which is comprised of... Uh, four free and charitable clinics and two federally qualified health care centers. That's Agape Health and Salzbacher, um, Muslim American Social Services, Community Health Outreach, Mission House at the Beach, and Volunteers in Medicine who, work, uh, who support our working uninsured. So as a shared project, we have a vision that um, every resident of Duval County has access to high-quality and comprehensive health care, regardless of their insurance status or their ability to pay. So we have a goal in this pilot, which is um, a three-year pilot project to move 2,000 uninsured individuals through our system um, into a primary care medical home. Got it. How long have you guys been around in the county? We, um, again, we are a three-year pilot program. We officially launched in January of 2021. Uh, this December, we just wrapped up our second full year, so we are currently moving or in our third and final year of our pilot project. Who's, uh, is, is all these organizations funding this? Who is the funder for all that? Because sadly, we all know healthcare is not cheap. Uh, no, it's not cheap. So the original funders for Jack's Care Connect um, are the DuPont Fund, the Community Foundation of Northeast Florida, Baptist Health, Riverside Hospital Foundation, and then um, about a year or so into the pilot, we've received um, funding from the city of Jacksonville to increase our capacity as a team and for technology. So walk us through the logistics. Let's say someone is listening and they are one of those folks without health insurance. How exactly does this work? Well, um, there's a couple ways they can enter into our uh, coordinated um, central intake system. Um, as an individual, they can go directly to our website or call. Um, happy to provide the, that information towards the end. Uh, primarily how we get our referrals is through our social workers at our local hospital EDs. 
Um, once we receive a referral, we do a eligibility and intake screening. I think it's really important here to point out during intake, we examine in-depth social determinants of health. So these are all those other barriers to health care that can prevent access. So if you think about um, your rent, transportation, access to food, do you have kids in the home? Are you a refugee? What's your documentation status? All of those things impact access to health care as well as um, prevent, you know, access to health care. So we examine those things because if we give you a doctor but you can't get there or you have to work, um, it's highly unlikely you're going to go. So um, once we do the intake screening and determine your eligibility, we assign our clients to what we call a patient health advocate, which is an kind of part caseworker, part navigator. Um, so that individual will work with them to assess what their next steps will be. Not every pathway will be the same. Some will go directly into a primary care medical home with one of our partners. Um, others will be assessed for maybe an Affordable Care Act um, insurance plan or uh, access to the UF Health City contract program would be a better option for them if they have complex health needs. Uh, so once they enter our system of care, we, we keep their case open for about a year because we really want to look at their longitudinal journey into healthcare and make sure that they're not only being connected, but that they are you know, maintaining and continuing to see their primary care doctor. So when uh, so it sounds like a, a referral gets you in and, and and it's all looked at on multiple ways to see if you're a candidate. Is there are there some people that they're not going to qualify? Uh, you know, sometimes I think of a certain state Medicaid's. Uh, there's a there's this number. If you make more than that. I'm sorry. Uh, does it work like that or, or not really? Yeah, Medicaid is a whole other conversation. but um, <laughs> A different show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so we do. Um, somebody may not be eligible due to income. Um, we serve 250% and below the federal poverty levels. So if you make more than that, you may be ineligible if you are outside of Duval County. Unfortunately, we have some close, you know, we share some borders with other counties. So somebody might be living right, you know, right there close to that Duval County and Clay border, for example. Um, that would make someone ineligible for the program if they're over 65 or under 18. That being said, um, we do not want to be a resource that turns anybody away. So we've established partnerships and resources in other counties. Um, as well as even within our own clinic network and outside, we know where to send people if they are over income, if they have insurance, or if they otherwise might not qualify for our program. So we don't necessarily turn people away. They just may not be eligible for our program. Uh, so it sounds like a great resource regardless, uh, just, to, just to see if, if you feel you may need help. This is something that could certainly help guide even if you don't get qualify for that program. Absolutely. As we're moving through the pilot and looking at the future, we're determining, you know, there are a lot of areas in which people meet certain criteria and not others, and we still want to be able to help them. What about specialty care services? A lot of folks come in uh, to a hospital emergency and they had something. Maybe they found a heart attack or maybe they're in my world and they had uh, uh, something neurological. What happens uh, when a specialist or specialty care is needed? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we are administratively and fiscally housed within We Care Jacksonville. Um, they have uh, been established here in our county for more than 40, well, 30 years, I'm sorry. Um, and they serve as our specialty care coordination um, agency. So they work with uh, volunteer providers um, who are able to provide specialty care. Uh, so it, we don't make that referral if once they're established in a primary care medical home or clinic, um, their PCP will then make that referral to We Care Jacksonville to get them um, teed up for specialty care. You know, we're seeing a huge increase in cancer right now, unfortunately, due yeah. to lack of screening over the pandemic. Um, so we do you know, rely very much on our partners at We Care Jacksonville to make sure there's continuity of care and a plan for individuals who have more complex health needs. One thing that we all know is that the population of uh, Duval County is uh, growing just like crazy numbers. Uh, when Every time we look, just we see the traffic, we see the people. How long do you have to have lived in this county to ex access your services? We don't have any requirements um, for length of stay in Duval County uh, to access you know, services through Jack's Care Connect. 
Now, that being said, some of the um, partner programs that we might connect an individual to have different requirements. Uh, our clinics do not. So we're able to move them into primary care quickly, regardless if they're new neighbors, if they've been here for a while. Um, we do rely on our patient health advocates to be experts in, in the different eligibility and, and process uh, processes to move through other applications. So, for example, UF Health City Contract Program does require someone to be a resident for three months. So we have to learn all the nuances of those programs. But to be um, supported through the services of Jack's Care Connect, and they moved here yesterday, we'll help them. <laughs> I, I know you've alluded to this just uh, from uh, the conversation of, of just the number of folks uh, in the area and all, but how many patients are, are you all serving? Is, is this been increasing? Uh, yeah, I would say um, since the launch of our program in uh, 2001 in January, we've processed about 1,900 referrals from different community partners and hospital partners. Um, it's nowhere near the 114,000 that are uninsured, right. Right. Uh, but we are. Well, that's busy, you know, <laughs> though. <laughs> we are seeing quite a number of referrals, and we don't anticipate um, that to slow down. Uh, we also are looking for Medicaid unwinding up around the corner here. We know a lot of individuals throughout the state of Florida and nationwide will be losing their continuous care coverage from Medicaid and they'll have to go somewhere. Some will be, um, you know, some might find employer coverage or some might be eligible to continue. Um, but we know we're expecting to see a pretty big spike here uh, in the spring from individuals losing that coverage. I'm, I'm curious uh, where, uh, and maybe this is a good moment to, to share with our listeners, where folks can find out more about Jack's Care Connect uh, just so that they have that resource available. Yeah, so uh, we do have a website, www.jackscareconnect.org. Um, that's a great place to go and learn about the services that we provide. It also has a great um, application link if anybody wants to refer themselves or a family member or a neighbor. Um, we are present on most social media platforms. We are on TikTok, on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. We're not on Twitter, um, but you can find us there as well. Um, our direct line is 904-595-7770. Um, and we also are involved in a lot of outreach. So if anybody's at the Melanin Market or at World of Nations, we'll be there. Um, as well as uh, March 3rd, we'll be in the public library uh, atrium from 9 a.m. to 12. So if you're at any of those events, please come say hi. That's wonderful because that, that and and we'll certainly highlight it on our website as well. Um, how is this different? And you mentioned this because I brought it up, but I'll I'll ask it right now. Then just joining uh, Medicaid. Um. So this could be a soapbox for me, so I'll try to be succinct. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we, we but share your opinion on this. Well, uh, Medicaid is government insurance, you know, designed to support low-income individuals uh, nationwide. So we are not insurance. We are a pathway and access to care. So that's probably the biggest difference. Um, but Florida, as many people may know or may not know, did not opt to expand Medicaid in the state. So it creates kind of a conundrum known as the coverage gap, and that's primarily who we serve. Um, as a program. So the coverage gap is individuals who do not qualify for subsidies for the Affordable Care Act because they are um, below 100% of the fe federal poverty guideline. In a non-expansion state, Medicaid doesn't pick up that 100% and below, which means those at the lowest um, poverty level in our state are not, um, they can't qualify for Medicaid and they can't qualify for subsidies, so it creates a gap. Um, that gap is about 400,000 across the state, uh, and that's that's really who we serve. I see. So it's uh, not only are we different, we're in some ways doing a little bit of, I don't know, sweeping up after. <laughs> I don't know if I could say that or you, not. You, but <laughs> you, you just did. <laughs> but, but, but that actually helps for, for me to understand and, and to frame the whole issue there. Uh, Jenny, in our last uh, moments here, any message you want to leave for our listeners out there should maybe not so much that they want to get your help. Maybe they want to help. Can uh, what message we have in that situation? Um, I think the best 
thing uh, right now to support Jack's Care Connect is to just spread the word. Um, if you have individuals in your life who, you know, lack access to care that, you know, you share our website with them and you share our program. Um, you know, we at Jack's Care Connect and in our network just strongly believe that health, you know, um, access to health care is a human right. You know, and a lot of our friends and our neighbors and our service workers and those lovely people bringing your food through Instacart, a lot of these people don't have health insurance. Um, and it really should be available. Health access to health care should be available to all. So for all those friends and neighbors and loved ones in your life, please share our services. Um, if you'd like to have other conversations on how to support us as a program, uh, we'd, we'd, we'd love to open the doors to those conversations as well. So you can feel free to contact uh, me directly. Jenny, thank you uh, uh, for all the amazing work that you and uh, all of Jack's Care Connect does uh, for the community. It's it's amazing, and we just appreciate you coming in and really sharing your story with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We've been talking to Jenny O'Donnell. She is Project Administrator for Jack's Care Connect. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Heather Schatz is our senior producer. Brendan Rivers is our producer. Isabella De Silva is our director. Next week's program is our monthly medical roundtable. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, emailing us at health at wjct.org, or tweeting me at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening, and stay in touch. in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org and by the Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit Epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today.